when I was in college, I joined a Christian fraternity that was on campus. And like most uh, young, immature Christian guys, uh, my brothers and I, we had a lot of innocent fun. And we often found ourselves getting into some pretty goofy and odd situations. But there was always one particular event in the life of our fraternity that stood out. One weekend during my junior year, one of my roommates got the bright idea to start this tradition of what is formally known around our fraternity today as the triple-double. Now, the triple-double is a monstrous task. It's an event that is not for the faint of heart, and it is not something that I would recommend for anyone here today. Yet the triple-double is a college student's dream. One Saturday night every semester, we gathered a lot of our fraternity brothers who were interested in participating in the triple-double. We would pile into a number of cars, and we would head over to the local CC's Pizza. And after we got there, we paid for our food. Here was a bunch of 18 to 21-year-old guys. We were arranging a bunch of tables in the CC's Pizza in one long family-style dinner table. And the oldest guy would pray, and then the triple-double would commence. You see, the triple-double was the task of every person there to eat 10 appetizers, 10 pieces of pizza, and 10 dessert items. Hence the triple-double. Now you can imagine, as you have a bunch of college guys at this CeCe's Pizza crushing food, you can imagine the look on parents' faces who had taken their young children to eat some pizza and have some fun. We had guys that were throwing down bowls of pasta and breadsticks. We had guys literally following these poor CeCe's employees out of the kitchen as they brought new pans of brownies and cinnamon rolls to the buffet. The triple-double is truly a sight to see. But arguably, what's more interesting than this feast itself is the way in which all of us prepared for it. You see, the weekend before, all of the guys who were interested would gather together and we would come up with this elaborate plan uh, as to how we would fast throughout the week to prepare ourselves for this feast. On Monday and Tuesday, we would skip breakfast. On Wednesday and Thursday, we would skip lunch and, or breakfast and lunch. And on Friday, we would take the whole day and not eat so that our stomachs would be totally prepared for the horrible choices that were about to be made. Now, I tell you this story not to show our poor dietary choices in college, but instead to draw out the fact that my friends and I, my fraternity brothers and I, were horribly missing the point of what it meant to fast. We were abstaining from food all week for our own personal gain. And in the text that we're going to be unpacking this morning, Jesus is going to warn against the hypocrites who, like my friends and I, also fasted for their own personal gain. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. You can, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of those out of the pew back in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen here behind me. 
And this morning, as we unpack Matthew chapter 6, and we look at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, as He warns the crowd about practicing the spiritual discipline of fasting in front of others for the sake of exaltation, I want to point out three truths. First, I want to define what biblical fasting is, and then we'll examine the two conditions that Jesus points out of what makes up a biblical fast. And as we close, we'll consider three quick application points on how we as a body today can participate in biblical fasting. So if you're someone who likes to take notes or you just like to have a general idea of where we're going this morning, then the main point of the sermon is this. The true disciple will hunger for the Lord as they fast from the things of this world. The true disciple will hunger for the Lord as they fast from the things of this world. So I'm going to read the text, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in and unpack what Jesus is saying here. So Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 16, the word of the Lord says this, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are our good king. You are gracious and kind to us, God, and you are the bread of life. You are the the, the only thing that our soul needs in this life and in the next. So God, I pray that as we unpack your word here, as you explain and discuss the spiritual discipline of fasting Lord, I pray that our hearts would be changed from one one degree of glory to the next. God, I pray that we as your people would practice the lost art of, of, of fasting. And God, that as we fast, we would forsake the things of this world so that we can draw near to you. God, that we would fast in such a way that our hearts don't long for this world, but they long for the next. They long for you, O Lord. God, would your word build your people up this morning? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here in verses 16 to 18, Jesus presents those listening to the Sermon on the Mount with the spiritual discipline of fasting. But for us, in our modern Western context today, the discipline of fasting is often prioritized very little if even practiced at all in the life of a Christian. And because of this, before we unpack how the true disciple is supposed to fast, we must all be on the same page and have a baseline, fundamental, biblical understanding of what fasting is and why the true disciple actually fasts. So that leads us to the first truth we see in the text. Number one, the true disciple will fast. 
the true disciple will fast. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. I want you to notice the way in which Jesus begins this section. Three simple words draw out this first truth that we see in the text. Jesus says, when you fast. He wasn't saying if you fast or on the occasion that you fast, but when you fast. It's important that we understand the spiritual discipline of fasting is never commanded by Christ. There's nowhere in the scriptures where you will see a thus saith the Lord or thou shalt fast. But even though it's not commanded by Christ, it is assumed by Christ that the true disciple will fast. Think about the context in which it was spoken. The previous two weeks, we've walked through two spiritual disciplines in which Jesus uses the exact same language that he uses here to introduce fasting. If you look back in chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus says, when you give. And in chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says, when you pray. And while giving and praying are also not specifically commanded by Christ, it is clear from the reading of that text and the application of that text that the true disciple will give and they will pray. We see these disciplines come to life in the early church as we examine story after story after story in the New Testament that testified of the early church's generous giving of their finances and their resources. In the early church, we see story after story of them spending lengthy amounts of time earnestly crying out to the Lord in prayer. And we even see this in our modern context today. Giving and praying are two important spiritual disciplines that the true disciples should display in their life. And it would be odd for us to think about the Christian life without giving and prayer, right? It, would see, it seems backwards for us to think that a Christian wouldn't give of their resources. And it seems odd that a Christian wouldn't spend time in prayer. Yet when it comes to fasting... It's a discipline that has unfortunately lost its fervor in the church today. Why, why is that? See, we don't practice the spiritual, dis the spiritual discipline of fasting for two reasons. First, practically we don't know what biblical fasting actually is. Maybe you have this ethereal idea of a fast, but you don't actually know why you're doing it. Much like my friends and I, we, we had this ethereal idea of what it meant to abstain from food for the week, but that wasn't a biblical fast. We didn't know what fasting actually was. And secondly, we don't practice the spiritual discipline of fasting because if we just call it what it is, we love the bread on our table much more than we love the bread of life. We subconsciously think that to go without food for our bodies is somehow worse than to go without food for our souls, namely Christ and His Word. And so if Jesus assumes that His people will fast, the question then becomes this. What is biblical fasting? And why does the true disciple fast? So for us to have a, 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 
a, a robust understanding of what fasting is, for us to be on the same page of what fasting is, then this is the running definition that we're going to uh, work with the rest of our time together. Fasting is the purposeful abstention from necessary or valuable things for the sake of godliness. Fasting is the purposeful abstention from necessary or valuable things for the sake of godliness. Now in the scriptures, fasting is almost always mentioned in relation to abstaining from food. And while some scholars will argue that fasting can apply to other areas of our lives today, things like fasting from your cell phone or fasting from social media, while some scholars disagree or agree on, on that topic, all, almost all agree on the desired outcome of fasting. The purpose of fasting is to draw near to the Lord as we forsake the pleasures of this world. The purpose of fasting is to draw near, to come close to the Lord as we forsake the pleasures of this world. And as we examine the scriptures, there were numerous circumstances that led a person to fast in the Bible. We see instances of people fasting for the sake of repentance. We see people fasting to accompany prayer. We see people fasting to to seek guidance from the Lord, plus countless others. And while there's a number of different circumstances that led a person to fast, all of these examples of biblical fasting had the sole purpose of drawing near to the Lord. And it's important for us to understand today that when we think about fasting, when we try to understand what biblical fasting is, it's important that we understand that the motive of fasting must be what drives the action. You see, if you were to abstain from food for a day without a desire to grow in godliness, then that's not a biblical fast. You're just willfully starving yourself. There must be a correct motive that drives a person to fast. You see, friends, as we seek the Lord in fasting, we intentionally Fight the urge to indulge ourselves with the pleasures of this world as we purposefully turn our eyes to Christ. The true disciple fasts because we recognize that we desperately need Jesus and His blood-bought redemption. The true disciple fasts because we recognize that we need grace upon grace. The true disciple fasts because we understand that the things of this world cannot satisfy us like Christ can. See, fasting is more than simply an act. It is a means of grace that draws us near to the Lord. So now that we know what biblical fasting is, it's the purposeful abstention from necessary or valuable things for the sake of godliness, and we know why the true disciples should fast, so we can draw near to the Lord as we forsake the things of this world, we can now turn our attention to how Jesus says the true disciple should fast. So truth number two. The true disciple will not draw attention to their fast. 
The true disciple will not draw attention to their fast. Look with me again at verse 16. Jesus again says, Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. You see, unlike giving and praying, fasting is not a discipline that can be tangibly observed by others. If you were to to give money or to give some type of resource, you can physically see the gift that was given. And if you pray lofty prayers, you can audibly hear those prayers that were spoken. But when it comes to fasting, we don't have x-ray eyes to check and see when someone is hungry when they're fasting. We can't see or know when someone else is abstaining from food. And because of this, the Pharisees and the scribes concocted an elaborate scheme to physically show their religious zeal while they fasted. Most scholars believe that when Jesus uses the phrase disfigure their faces, he was actually referring to the act of smearing ashes on one's face. Similar to the the act of, of covering one's head in ashes in the Old Testament. But I want you to notice how sly and how cunning the scribes and the Pharisees were. You see, the act of smearing ashes on one's face and head was an act that was widely practiced in the Old Testament. And if you were to go back and and study those verses, unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack the theological significance and the biblical significance of a person sitting in ashes on with, with ashes on their head and on their face. The act itself was almost always to show desperation, repentance. And dependency on the Lord. You see, the act of smearing ashes on one's head and one's face was a right and good act in and of itself at the time. But this is juxtaposed to what the Pharisees did. You see, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they twisted this practice by adding the discipline of fasting to it, which over time became a symbol of religious zeal through fasting. So when the Israelites would recognize the scribes and Pharisees sitting with ashes on their head and ashes covering their face, their minds over time went to the the thought of these people are fasting out of religious zeal for the Lord. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes were practicing this to show the world how pious and how godly they actually were. And the scribes and the Pharisees used the ashes to prove how righteous they were, all the while the ashes simply acted as a mask to cover how wretched and despicable they truly were. The Pharisees and the scribes earned the title of hypocrite not because they were doing the wrong things necessarily. Remember, we see the act of covering one's head and face in ashes in the Old Testament. That in and of itself, if done with the right motive, is not a bad thing. And the act of fasting, if done with the right motive, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees earned the title of hypocrite because they had the wrong motives behind their fast. They fasted to draw attention to themselves rather than the Lord. They fasted to puff themselves up instead of the Lord. 
The scribes and the Pharisees fasted to gain the applause of man at the expense of the approval of the Lord. Jesus makes that clear in verse 16. In verse 16, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The scribes and the Pharisees, through their their outward act of piety and through their outward act of zeal for the Lord, they had received their reward. You see, much like giving and praying, which we've examined the last two weeks, the scribes and the Pharisees had won the people over with their devotion to the Lord through the act of fasting. But in verse 16, Jesus points out that they had already received their due reward. Their reward. The, scribe, the reward of the scribes and the Pharisees was not from the Lord, but from man. You see, they had earned the respect and the praise from their fellow Israelites as they sat looking maligned and ashes with, with ashes on their face and their head. And the, and the Israelites that saw these people lifted them up and said, I want to be like them. The scribes and the Pharisees were essentially the religious superstars of the day according to their own people. Yet the buck stopped there. Those who claimed to be spiritually wise were actually fools who did not know the Lord. You see, friends, the reward of man is actually no reward at all. The approval of man is a fleeting pleasure that will only fuel the pride of self. The applause of man is a cheap counterfeit to the reward of the Lord. It was as if the the Pharisees had wallets and money bags full of monopoly money. It meant absolutely nothing, and it was absolutely worthless in the grand scheme of things. Their reward would burn up and perish like chaff on the day of judgment. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. That's the point that Jesus is trying to draw out as he exposes the religious hypocrites. As opposed to the hypocrites, Jesus wants the true disciple to practice the spiritual discipline of fasting, not to seek the reward of man, which is perishable, but instead to find the true treasure, the Lord Himself, that which is imperishable. Friends, the, the, the desire to be applauded by man, the desire to puff oneself up, the, the sin of pride is one that is so tempting for us to fall into. But friends, let me exhort you not to fall victim to the temptation of self-exaltation. Let me exhort you not to fall victim to pride and arrogance seeking the praise of man. Because it is a deadly poison and it will lead to death. Friends, when you fast, or when you practice any other spiritual discipline for that matter, Don't make it known to others around you so that they will pat you on the back as you crush it for Jesus. I'll just be honest with you, full transparency, when we used to fast as a church together, I didn't truly understand or know what biblical fasting was. And when we would fast together as a body, my intentions were not 
pure. I hoped that when we got to prayer that night and we were prepared to break our fast, I hoped that someone would ask me, Andrew, did you fast today? Did you make it through the day without eating? Not because I wanted to grow near to the Lord as I fasted, but because I wanted to tell my brothers and sisters in Christ that with my iron will, I made it through the day without fasting. I wanted someone to pat me on the back as I made it through the day without eating. It also didn't help that I work with two pastors and that as I as they didn't eat at lunch, I also didn't want to be the one that was going to break the fast and eat at lunch. And so I thought that if I fasted and I made it through the day and that if someone asked me if I fasted, I could wave my banner of Jesus and say, look how good I am. In that moment, I was no different than the scribes and the Pharisees. Friends, don't make your spiritual disciplines known to those around you so that they will pat you on the back. Make it known to those around you so that you can encourage other brothers and sisters in the faith. If fasting is a regular part of your walk with Christ, praise the Lord. Don't hide it under a blanket, but instead encourage your fellow brothers and sisters to join you in that. Encourage people who have never fasted before or who have never understood what fasting actually is. Encourage them to walk alongside you and follow you as you follow Christ not for the sake of exalting you. Friends, remember the words of our Savior when he said, let your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now before we move on to uh, the last truth from this text, we first have to understand what Jesus is not saying in this text. So as we talk about not drawing attention to yourself in fasting, not desiring to puff yourself up as you fast, It can be tempting to swing the pendulum to the other side completely and and come away with the principle of this text saying, well, no one can ever know that I'm fasting. Friends, let me encourage you, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that if anyone ever finds out that you're fasting, that you're a hypocrite. That's not what he's saying here. The scriptures don't add up to that, and and, and the, the, the principle that Jesus is drawing out does not add up to that. Jesus is not condemning the public knowledge of fasting. Jesus is condemning the desire of public praise for fasting. You see, there are numerous instances of corporate fasting throughout the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, Israel often fasted together as a community, as they sought the Lord. In the New Testament, the early church often fasted corporately, together as a body as they sought the Lord. You see, it is a good and right thing for God's people to corporately seek Him as they deny the fleeting pleasures of this world together. So please, if you you read this text and you hear this sermon, don't leave here with the principle thinking that if your spouse or your fellow church member or your friend or co-worker finds out that you're fasting, then you should just throw your hands up and give up because you're a hypocrite. That's not what Jesus is saying here. You will only be acting as a hypocrite when you seek the praise of others because of your fasting. So that leads us to our third truth that we see in the text. So first we had the true disciple will pray. Second, we had the true disciple will not draw attention to their fast. And third, 
You see, the true disciple will draw near to the Lord as they fast. The true disciple will draw near to the Lord as they fast. Look with me at verse 17. Jesus continues saying, but when you fast, there's that word again, but when you fast, the assumption of Jesus that his people will fast, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. Now, as opposed to the hypocrites who drew attention to themselves when they fasted by disfiguring their faces, Jesus tells the true disciple to anoint their head and wash their face. It seems like an odd thing to do as we read this text. Why does Jesus tell them to anoint their head and to wash their face? Well, in the context of what Jesus is saying, This act of anointing one's head with oil and washing one's face was not an especially holy act. It was actually an act of normality. Think about where Jesus is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount. The Mediterranean climate surrounding Galilee was extremely hot and it was extremely dry. Showers and lotion and conditioner were not readily available And so the first century Israelites used the next best thing. The first century Israelites would use various types of oils to moisturize their skin and their scalps. And then they would wash their faces to remove sweat and dirt. Jesus was telling the Israelites, those listening to the Sermon on the Mount, to wash themselves as they normally did on a day-to-day basis. And Jesus encourages this so that they would not draw attention to themselves. He says, wash and anoint as you would every other day, even if you weren't fasting, so that no one will recognize your fast. You see, Jesus' invitation to fast is actually an invitation to feast. Jesus tells the true disciple to act in such a way that no one would ever know that they were fasting because for them to fast is actually for them to gain. And this really is the counter-cultural nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus is trying to draw out in the Sermon on the Mount. To a secular world, to a world around Jesus in the first century, and to a secular world today in our context, Fasting is of no practical benefit. To a secular world today, the the act of fasting to purposely abstain from something seems horribly pointless. We live in a generation today where we can acquire as much as we want as quickly as we want. You want something to eat? Go to the pantry. Go to the local grocery store. Is your new show that you're watching starting to bore you? Well, choose, from a, choose another one from the countless streaming services there are out there. There's even a delivery service that I saw yesterday uh, that will bring snacks to your doorstep. So like, it's like DoorDash for snacks, which I thought was very interesting. But our cultural moment today is feeding off the desire and the pleasure of self. Our cultural moment is feeding off of self-worth self-exaltation, and self-preservation. 
And then you have the spiritual discipline of fasting that comes in like a wrecking ball and shatters every thought of cultural normality. The spiritual discipline of fasting completely goes against the grain of our culture. Fasting takes our eyes off of ourselves and our own desires, and it forces us to look to the one who provides every good thing that we have. You see, the true disciple who fasts may not gain the applause of man. You may not be patted on the back for your piety. Nor will the person who fasts have the desires of their flesh scratched and tickled. But the true disciple who fasts has a reward that is far greater than the loudest applause of man and the deepest desire of the flesh. David makes this clear in Psalm 63.5 when he says, quote, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You see, the reward of the true disciple who fasts is actually the Lord Himself. When we purposefully abstain from the pleasures of this world with the intention of drawing near to the Lord, He will be our reward. He will be our treasure. When we fast, when we purposefully abstain from the pleasures of this world, our souls will feast on rich food because we will hunger and thirst for righteousness, friends, not for the things of this world. And as we think about fasting, as we think about what the, what the reward is, what the gain is in fasting, you may be thinking to yourself like, I've tried it before. I get super anxious when I fast or I get really hangry when I fast. I don't like going without food. My body hurts. I get really bad headaches. But friends, we don't have to fast with anxious hearts or frustrated appetites. We can fast with joy and hope because the Father who sees in secret, the Father who sees your fast in secret will draw you into Himself. We can fast with joyful and glad hearts because we reflect on the good news of the gospel. Fasting is not something that enslaves us. Instead, it is a reminder of the one who has freed us from slavery. As we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2, following the course of this world, carrying out the passions of our flesh and the desires of our bodies, we know that we were sinners by nature. By nature, we often gratify ourselves. We want to build ourselves up. We want to preserve ourselves. Friends, we are sinners by nature. And our souls before Christ feasted on spiritual garbage as we willfully followed the schemes of Satan. But Ephesians 2 tells us again, But God, who is rich in mercy, has saved us by grace through faith in Christ, and He has now seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And friends, now that we have been seated in the heavenly places with Christ, we are invited to dine at table with Him as our souls feast on the bread of life. 
Friends, we can fast with joy because according to Revelation 19, there's coming a day that we will, as Christ's bride, His church, His body, will be united with Him for eternity and we will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will feast with Christ for eternity. So friend, if you are here this morning and you have never repented of your sin, you never trusted in Jesus as the one who bore your sin on the cross, then let me invite you to do that today. Let me invite you to, to put away the desires of the flesh. Let me invite you to put away the spiritual malnourishment and to dine at the table with Christ as you repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. He is the one who died in your place on the cross, was resurrected from the dead. Friends, believe in that, not the things of this world. Feast on the bread of life because your soul desperately needs it. Drink deeply from the well of living water because it is the only because it is only Jesus that supplies it. So with all this talk about fasting, think about the discipline of fasting. It's a discipline that we don't often practice today. You may be thinking to yourself, Andrew, I have never done this before. I don't even know where to start. Where in the world do I begin to fast today? So I want to quickly close with three points of application that can help you begin practicing this spiritual discipline regularly in your life. So first, start small. Very simple. Start small. If you've never fasted before, or if you struggle to consistently fast, then this is the most important place you can start. Start small and set tangible, reachable fasting goals. If you've never fasted before, Probably, you sh- probably shouldn't try to model Jesus as he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. Set tangible, small goals. Start by fasting from maybe a meal a day. Maybe skip breakfast. And instead of uh, eating breakfast, maybe try to spend time intentionally in prayer or intentionally studying God's Word. And as you work out that spiritual muscle, increase the fast as you can. Friends, remember, it's about the motive. It's not about how long you fast, but instead about the heart behind the fast. So start small. Second, plan what you'll do. Plan what you'll do. Much like starting small, having a plan is something that is crucial when you fast. I know for me, as I began to study this text and come under conviction that I've actually never biblically fasted before, and I set out last week to pursue a biblical fast, this was one of the most important things that I had to do. So as you plan, or as you prepare to fast, plan on what you'll do. Have specific prayer points written down to keep you on track. Have a specific text or a book of the Bible that you want to deeply study while you fast. Read good spiritual books during that time. Supplement something during the time that you would normally eat. Substitute something in that time like praying, studying the Word, or reading good books so that you won't be tempted to break the fast. When your stomach is rumbling because you haven't eaten, having a plan of what you will do helps fight the temptation to break the fast. So start small, 
Plan what you will do. And lastly, remember what matters. Remember what matters. When you are fasting, it's tempting to dwell on what you're missing out on. The temptation as you abstain from food is to indulge yourself. But when the pains of hunger strike, when the headache sets in, and when the fatigue wears you down throughout the day, call on Christ to be your portion in that moment. Cry out to the Lord and pray His Word back to Him. Remind yourself of the words Jesus spoke when He fasted in the wilderness, saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. As the pain lingers in your body and you meditate on Christ while you fast, He will satisfy and nourish your soul. So start small. Plan what you'll do. And remember what matters. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come back up. And as the worship team comes up, I want to close with this. When was the last time you fasted? Have you ever fasted? And if you have, has it been for the right reasons? Church, I want to encourage you to implement this spiritual discipline in your life. It's difficult. It's hard. It goes very much against the grain of the culture. But friends, know that the Lord will sustain you. The Lord will draw near to you as you draw near to Him. So friends, let us hunger for the Lord as we fast from the things of this world. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. We worship you as the bread of life, the one who provides spiritual nourishment for our souls. God, the discipline of fasting is hard. It is challenging. It can be tempting to walk away from a, from a text like this and, and, and hang our head in shame because we don't practice the spiritual discipline of fasting or we've never fasted with the right motives. But God, I pray that as we follow you in this life, longing for the life that's to come, would we implement the discipline of fasting into our lives regularly? Would it be something we do with joy and gladness so that as we abstain from the things of this world, as we deny the pleasures of this world, and we draw near to you, Father, would we recognize in that moment that you are our portion? You are the bread of life that has the words of eternal life. You are the one who provides the living water. And you call us, God. You invite us to come and dine at that table. So God, as your people, would we feast on the bread of life and would we drink deeply from the well of the living water. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.